0: But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said that to his disciples. He kind of laid down the gauntlet of what it meant to follow him, to be a... What happened is a couple of the disciples said, "Hey, can we be your right hand? Can we be your right hand men when the new kingdom comes?" He said, "Let me tell you a little bit about my kingdom." He said, uh, "In my kingdom, the first are last; those who would desire to be great would have to become servants to me. The way you do that is you become servants to each other." And and uh, you know if you're a if you're a Christian who really really wants to get it right, the words you'd want to hear when you stood before Jesus right are. Uh, the words that he said to the, in the parable, that uh, the master said to the servant who had multiplied his his gifts, he's multiplied his money. He said, uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we all want to hear those words. And serving is not just uh, relegated to Christianity, there's uh, all kinds of different people that serve all over the world and do wonderful things. But, uh, there's something unique about the nature of a servant in the Christian faith. You know, I, I think I saw it once. I, I, I'm going to define it for you, but I think I actually saw it in a real visceral way one time uh, in the Dominican Republic. I was on a mission trip. I was a high school kid, and and uh, they said, hey, we're going to go to a leper colony. And uh, we thought, wow, you know, and you have these visions of leper colonies in the Bible and of lepers and everything, and... So at first you're you're kind of fascinated and interested, and then you're kind of scared, and you think about how do you get leprosy and and uh, we say okay yeah that's great we're going to go. So we loaded in this old school bus and we drove hours and hours. We had actually it was right across the border of Haiti, and we drove and drove and drove and drove, and, drove and the roads got worse and worse and worse. And you know that if you've ever been to Haiti or flown over the Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, it goes from green to brown. I mean you can literally see the 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 border. So we cross into this just adverse, adverse poverty, abject poverty, and uh, we come up to this camp in this little town. And it's got a high wall, and there's barbed wire on the top, and it's turned, it's turned inward toward the end of the camp. And I kind of noticed that, well, that seems odd. I mean, usually that sticks out, right, to keep the people from getting in. And, and they said, no, 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 the, this town, these people believe that leprosy is a curse from, from God, or the gods or whatever, and so they don't want those lepers getting out. So the not in my backyard issue came up and they said, well, if we're going to have a leper colony anywhere near our town, uh, we're going to build a wall and we're going to barb wire it so those lepers can't get out. And uh, so now we're even more mortified. What are we going to see in here? And they had the same questions. How do you get leprosy, right? So we go in and we're assured that this is okay. And it's explained to us that leprosy is actually a neurological disorder. Uh, lots of things were called leprosy in the Bible. Some of them were contagious skin diseases, but leprosy as we understand it today is a neurological disorder that's not transmittable by touching someone and things like that. So they've assured of all the, all this. So conceptually, we kind of say, okay, and we trust our leaders and we go in. And the first thing I notice inside these walls is that it's more beautiful in there than it was outside in the village where the normal people were. So that's interesting. Pretty landscape, nice trees, immaculate, spotless, fresh paint. And I even see somebody working. And the next thing I notice is that there's kind of a nice spirit here, right? People are kind of happy. And I noticed there's some people working. And, And at first you just see a guy painting, but then you realize he's painting and he has no other arm, right? He's painting with one arm. And and uh, he's missing part of a foot, and then uh, the next person you see is missing something else, maybe part of their nose or their face. And but they're all very clean, and they're all very sort of radiant. They're just they're just sort of happy, normal people. So we're feeling better and better, you know. And we we come in and we get out, and we go into the the room where we were going to meet the people that ran this place. And we tell you who it was. You know, I'm a I'm a, I'm a Protestant, right? I'm a Presbyterian. Um, I'm going to tell you who it was. Reformation, Martin Luther, 96 theses, right? Let me tell you what, who they were. They were two little nuns. And they were, I'm not kidding you when I say they were this tall. And they were a little bit hunched over. Neither one of them could have been less than 70 years old. They'd been doing this for 17 years at the time. I, I think they were both at maybe 80. So let's see, 63. They founded this leopard colony uh, in Haiti. When they were 63... And for 17 years, they'd built this place up. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you, in some sort of visceral way, I saw someone who I just knew, uh, you know, I, I hope they got the gospel because I'm going to tell you, I just saw someone and I said, I can't imagine them not hearing well done, good and faithful servant. Right? I, it was like this manifestation of what real, not just service, was, but servanthood of Jesus was, because everything was backwards. These were the wretched, poor, nasty lepers, but they were the, the best-looking people in the village. They, they had done, they'd flipped everything that's on its head, just like Jesus, and they were these ultimate servants, and I just can't express to you their love for Christ, the way they expressed that verbally to me express their faith in Jesus for their salvation and and the overflow of that uh, into these people whom they had led to Christ. And I got news for you, no one else would have. And there was just something in that experience that said, well done, good and faithful servant. That is, these are servants of the Lord. I know that's very touchy-feely and very subjective. We're going to be more objective, but I wanted to start with that. Because if you noticed at Rio, uh, serving is a big deal to us, right? G-P-S. Say it for me. What's G? Plug-in. Right, it's the S. That was really, I would have been so sad if you didn't know what those were. Because every week I drone on and I said, yeah, they're plug-in, serve. Yeah, they're plug-in serve is the s and gps right and, and here's why that is because we believe that we gather we come together for corporate worship we plug in by being in community in small communities that love each other and serve and and uh, uh study god's word together and um, care for each other and then serve uh that's plugging in and, and then by serving in this sense that i'm talking about we believe that those are sort of the three modes that that god grows us with I grow in my relationship to Christ. That's our mission, right? To lead people into growing relationship with Christ. I grow when I gather and when I plug in and when I serve. If I only gather okay, and I don't plug in and serve, then my worship becomes sort of empty and meaningless. If I only plug in, then I become ingrown, right? I have a little country club, and if I only serve, it becomes this sort of random, willy-nilly, uh, duty-driven, uh, I do this because I have to, or I think, you know, it'll make God happy, frustrating experience. And if you've ever really served, you know that if, if it doesn't, if it isn't rooted in the right thing, it can be a really exhausting and frustrating deal. We value service here, big time. Um, I have this great uh, blessing every year. I do this little exercise where I ask all the ministry leaders to, to send me a list of all of the people in their ministries that serve regularly, right? Um, and that means like not two years ago, they volunteered in the nursery once. It means at least on a, on a regular basis, they're involved and in actively in ministry at Rio, in our ministries outside of Rio, in, in the mission field, Um, you know, in Hope, South Florida, or four kids. And, uh, you know, the first year I did that, I had a little fear and trepidation uh, how many people there would be because you have this impression there's only a little few people doing all the work. And, well, there was 96 people, right, in a church at the time with about 300 in attendance. 96 people, wow. Well, the next year, there were 136 people. And I just did it again this year for the third time. There were over 200 people on that list. 200. Our average attendance, you know, every heartbeat attendance is maybe five hundred and fifty two people. That's men, women, and children. And then 200 of them serving, right? So we value service. We even have a tool that we call find your thing and do your thing. We develop this tool because we also see in Ephesians 4 that the job of the pastors and leaders of a church is not to do the real ministry, be the hired guns that, that you guys delegate the real ministry to. Our job is to equip you. He says. He says, equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that's what our job is to do. So we've created a tool. We call it Find Your Thing and Do Your Thing. It's a little packet. You can download it online. You go through this exercise, and it kind of helps you meditate on your life and your time and your talent and your treasure, uh, your gifts and your abilities and all these things to figure out what is your thing or your things in this season of your life and to get you to give you opportunities to do that. In case you haven't, noticed, we really think serving is important. But here's the, the problem. Serving is a very, very risky thing. And we're going to look at a guy today who served God his whole life. He was more devout, I promise, than you or me. I promise you he knew God's word better than you or I do. I promise you he was at all the church functions. He was at the potlucks. He was at the rituals. He, he, he prayed. He did everything he was supposed to do. He tithed his income and probably more. And when he saw God face to face... He had no idea who he was. Isn't that a horrifying thing to think about? Ultimate servant. You can be an ultimate servant, and then God walks up to you, and you say, who are you? I have no idea who you are. And that was what happened to Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. We value service a lot in this church, but we want to approach service... With Jesus understanding of what that is. And so I'm going to give you the big idea for today. Um, one of the problems when you only preach a few times is that when, when you preach a lot, I, I've been in church where I spoke and preached a lot, preached every week and things like that. that and sometimes then you get frozen and you're like, oh, I don't have anything to say this week. But when you only preach a few times, the problem is you have like a giant bucket of things you want to say. So it's about, you know, dumping out all the bucket, but the one drop that matters. So hopefully I, I won't go on. If you get tired or bored, just go to sleep. I don't, I, I don't, I can't see very well and I don't care. Just do it. And if I think you particularly need this message, I will come and wake you up. Um, If I don't think you do, I'll just say, you you can go to sleep. Um, Hugh Morris, you're a good guy. You you can take a nap. You get a pass. He's a community group leader, so, you know, he he lays it out there. But we have to understand the service thing in a proper context. And so it goes like this. Um, True, healthy, biblical Christian service, okay? Service in the the eyes of, of Christ, is a response to who God is and what he's done. It is a response to who God is and what he's done. It is when God moves in your life from concept to reality. Our goal at the end of the day is to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. You know what? Our goal is not to help homeless people. Our goal is not to adopt orphans our goal is not to go to the mission field to go out in the missions world and build dig wells and do all these kinds of those are not our goals those are our means those are those are the mercy of christ that breathes his his heart and mind into the lives of people ministry through mercy is a means it's also a standalone just because we love them and we keep doing it even if they don't receive jesus but it's not the end the end is to know jesus face to face for real and let me say something. You know why we struggle with leading people to Christ? You know why? Uh, here's, here's. I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, in our culture, in the last, in this generation, the last thirty years, church attendance is down ten percent. Um, that's a lot. But let me tell you what's even worse. Uh, all other church related activities, Bible studies, volunteering, be involved in parachurch ministries in the community, are down fifty percent. Well, let me tell you what one of the reasons I think that is. Let me tell you why I think Europe is dead and, and we risk this. It's because uh, for many, many of us, we have either allowed God or it's we, we've never met God face to face. We've never met Jesus. He is a concept to us. And I'm going to get good news for you. A non-believer can sniff out when Jesus is just a concept to you. You know, this, this woman that was acquitted this week and everybody was going crazy. How could they do that? How could they acquit her? She was obviously guilty. Well, I'll guarantee you what her, fir- her lawyer's first job was, was to convince the jury that he believed she was innocent. And he must have been skilled, or she, or whatever it was. I try not to follow that because it corrupts me. But I'll guarantee you the first job was for that lawyer to convince the jury that that lawyer believed she was truly innocent. So there is a reality as opposed to a concept that has to happen in your life before serving is going to be worth doing in this church, or in the church with a capital C. So let's take a look at this guy, Paul. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do. You know what? We cheat a little bit on you. I, I usually print the Bible notes in my, my, the Bible stuff in my notes, so I can go right to it, I'm just seamless, and, and I'm telling you to turn your Bible, and you're not like. You know, so I brought my Bible up here and I have to flip to it just like you, although I did put the leaf into the thing. So, (laughs) all right, if you're using the Reformation Study Bible, we are on page 1574. Um, By the way, somebody told me to mention to you, we have Wi-Fi in here. I've started to see iPads pop up and pull up the study guide and things like that. And you're welcome to do that. We will not think you're playing video games, which means you can play video games because we won't know. Um, I'm just saying, we're not perfect up here. Okay. Uh, Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that was another name for Christianity, uh, followers of Christ, men or women, he points out, he, may, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And I said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do there. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although he, his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now this is an amazing thing that has happened here, okay? I never realized until I really scrutinized this passage, the deal with Saul. Saul was a violent man. He tells this story two other times in Acts 22 and again in Acts 26, and every time he tells it, he just, he reminds how violent he was. Let me tell you what he was doing, okay? This was a religious guy. Like I said, he was a Pharisee. This was a sect that was incredibly committed to the rituals of the Jewish faith. Um, They were sort of, you know, heralded by the people. They were the people, they they were the leaders of the people. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. The Pharisees were the common man guys, but many of them were wealthy. Um, we know that Paul bought his citizenship for, as a Roman citizen, uh, but here's the deal. Um, he was a faithful religious guy, um, but here's what he was doing, okay? He had decided these Christians were enemies of God, okay? And so he was going to the high priest in Jerusalem and getting unsigned arrest warrants. Just give me a stack of arrest warrants. With nobody's name on them, and let me, and then, and then write a letter to all the synagogues in Damascus. Let me tell you something about Damascus. It wasn't even in Israel, it was in another country. So he gets these letters from the high priest, who's authorized by the Roman government to basically have a uh, martial, or a. Uh, Eminent domain, alright, so they can sort of enforce their own laws. So he takes these letters and he gets guys and he's, he takes people with him so he's got some muscle and he marches down, he's heading to Damascus to do this. He's not just going to go arrest people. He's going to go ferret them out, find where they are, bind them, tie them up, drag them back to Jerusalem. Where he's gonna do some kind of a mock trial, try and get them to do something that can be interpreted as blasphemy, beat them if he has to, and then kill them and proudly sign the paper. That's that's Saul. He's a vicious, violent man. Now, he was brutal, but you know what he wasn't? He was not scandalous. This is important. He was a man of his time. He was a Roman citizen. What did they say? When in Rome, do what the Romans do, right? Well, Paul was a Roman citizen, and he was doing what the Romans do. It was common practice that when you needed to put down the wrong thing, what did you do? Violence. You used violence to stop political protests. You used violence to stop military revolts. You used violence. You killed criminals, no matter what their crime. You killed them. You sent a message with violence that this behavior was not acceptable. And he was just, he was a man of his time. So then this thing happens. He sees this flash of light in another passage and in his other telling of it he said it was brighter than the sun. So it literally might have burned his eyes. That literally might be what blinded him as it burned his eyes. It was brighter than the sun and he falls down and this man who was this evil, this, this violent man who was marching to Damascus is all of a sudden finds himself laid out on the ground and someone speaks to him, speaks into his life. And says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, me. And what does he say? He knows it's a divine deal, right? He knows this is some kind of divine thing. What does he say? Who are you, Lord? This man of God, this man of religious principle, when he stood face to face, did not recognize his God. Well, now, why is that? Why is that for us? What Could that happen to me? I'll tell you what, when that happens. It's when God is just a concept to you instead of a reality. This uh, uh, Dr. Tim Keller, pastor at Redeemer Church, I'm going to tell you right now, you should go and you should get the podcast and you should listen to his sermon. I, I referenced it in there, uh, his sermon on, on this idea of what he calls the God quake. When the God quake happens in your life. He said there's a difference between God as a concept and God as a, as a uh As a reality, when God is a concept, he is lighter than you. And what does that mean? It means that he's lighter than you. It means that when you move through life, he moves out of your way. It means that when you have attitudes, he adapts to your attitudes. It means that when you make a decision about how to use your time or your money or your power or whatever you have, you base that on your decision and he moves out of your way. He works for you. He consults with you. Um, you've got a plan and you're moving toward it and when plans don't go your way, that's when you turn to God to pray. You turn to this concept that is God and you ask him to fix your, why, my, my plans aren't working, God, so fix them and make my plans work. He he rearranges himself around you. But when God is a reality to you, when he's real to you, Saul, Saul, well, then he's heavier than you. If you look on your cover of, your, of your, your study guide, you see a picture of something dropping into a thing of water. Imagine a bowling ball falling into a pool, uh, a pool of water. What happens? That bowling ball is heavier than the water. It displaces everything to make room for itself. When God becomes real to you, he drops into your life and he creates this God quake. You ever notice in scripture, whenever God comes down, there's an earthquake. He displaces everything out of his way and everyone knows he's there. There's no confusion. So when God enters your life and he is real, he displaces you. And you move out of his way. And your attitudes change to adapt to his attitudes. And your mission is his mission that he's given you. And the way that you use your time and the way that you use your money and the way that you use your your skills and abilities and other resources all become rearranged. God rearranges the furniture of your life when he becomes real to you. This is hard for pastors because a lot of times we speak in isolation and we'll talk, we'll do a thing on money, right? And we talk about you you need to be faithful to God's word and your money, right? Well, the truth is, all we're saying is you need to bring everything in your life, including that which is most precious to you. And for many of us, that is our money, which represents security and everything else. You need to bring that under the authority of God and hold it with an open hand and let him displace your attitudes and your vision, and adopt his, envelop his with your life. Well, that's what just happened to Paul. You know what we call that? Conversion. He was converted. Now, there are a couple kinds of conversion. You might be saying this, hey, you know what? All right, here's the deal. If I was on my way to, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Rockburger, And, and, uh, you ever been to rock burger, great burger, unbelievable burger downtown. Anyway, I was on my way to rock burger and, and all of a sudden the uh, light shone brighter than the sun. And I was, you know, and then Jesus appeared to me and said, Oh, Matthew, what Matthew, Matthew, why are you going to rock burger instead of serving me? I'd probably, you know, I'm, I'm on your team, Lord. Well, let me tell you something. I, I call that a, a terrible and glorious moment conversion. Some conversions, very few, to tell you the truth, even biblically, are terrible and glorious moment conversions. They're like microwave conversions. It's like God is picking this one particular person that he has a very unique, big purpose for, and he comes down, and all at once, in an instant, he transforms their mind, their heart, and their will all at once, bam, just like that, and then they go to serve him. He does this all the time. In Scripture, we think. But the truth is, most of the time, by far, the, the millions or billions of converts over the centuries, their conversion is a journey of some sort. It might be a minute, an hour, a, a day, a week, a month, a year. It might be 50 years. Uh, St. Augustine's mother prayed for He was a pagan. His mother prayed for him every day to the point the priest kicked her out of the church and said, Look, anybody that prays like you, God's going to listen. You don't need to come to us. Till he was 32... Your history guy, was it 32? Is that when he was converted? You don't know? Yes! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's a really smart history guy. He probably knows. He's just being humble. Like 32 years old, he gets converted, alright? It's a process. Now, at the end of it, he kind of had this moment, alright? If you read about it, he kind of had this vision. But the point is that most of us, me, I'm included, your conversion is a journey, and that doesn't mean you're at some point you're almost converted. You're half converted. It's not that, okay? Uh, what it, but what I mean is that there's a reasoning that takes place. When we see that Lydia was converted in, in the book of Acts, we see that they reasoned with her, and they explained the gospel, and she came to Christ. No fire and brimstone or anything. Uh, the Thessalonians, it says they sit down for many, many days, and they studied and reasoned together, and they proved to some of the Thessalonians that Jesus was who he said he was, and some of them followed Paul and Silas. Ananias, the man about which we're about to read in the rest of the story. Ananias, we don't have any indication that he had some big miraculous flashing light. As far as we know, this is the only thing of record that he did, basically, was being the one that Jesus sent to Paul, to Saul, who would become Paul, in the middle of this thing to to be Jesus to him in that moment. But Ananias was faithful. So the point is, there's two kinds of conversion. There's the, the, the terrible and glorious moment, and then there's also the journey, but they both lead to the same thing, the transformation of your heart, mind, and will. However it happens, that's conversion. So as an aside, what's a litmus test for you? You look at your life, have I been converted? It's a legitimate question, and you know what? If the answer is no, don't be scared, <gasps> but pursue it, pursue Jesus. Ask God to drop into your life and, dis- and displace you pursue that relationship reason together with people who can explain these things to you but one of the ways you know is by how you serve and why you serve and all those kinds of things we'll talk about that in a minute but let me finish this this let me tell you what happens next so paul is totally wrecked now there was a disciple at damascus named ananias the lord said to him in a vision ananias and he said here i am lord and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at that house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and, lay, and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love this. In Paul's mind, all that's happened is he was on the way to kick some butt in Damascus, and he got his butt kicked instead, and he's blind, and he's shivering in somebody's house, physically destroyed. That's all Paul knows. That's all Saul knows. All Ananias knows is that there's this crazy guy named Paul who's coming to kill him. But Jesus is up there and he's going, hey, Ananias, check this out. I just, there's this guy named Paul and he's staying at this house. Uh, and or this guy Saul staying at this house. And he heard in a vision it's somebody named Ananias is going to come to him. Jesus is in control of all of this stuff. He's not surprised. And Ananias, what does he do? Well, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many men, many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief, from the high, the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The worst volunteer recruitment sales pitch of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Go find this guy, Paul, who I have just destroyed. And tell him that he is an instrument of mine and that he will suffer much. Hey, come help out with the children's ministry. Let me tell you how much you will suffer. (laughs) Maybe that's why we don't have enough nursery workers. That was the pitch. So I want to take just one second to say this. You know, again, I had never really scrutinized this like this before. You know, one of the intellectual evidences... uh, for the reason I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, is of course the resurrection and all the things that changed in the world because of that. But I had never thought about this little piece of history. This guy, Paul, we have already said who he was and what he was like, and you never would have heard of him other than that maybe he was some crazy guy who had this vision. You never would have heard of him. He went nuts. And for a few days, he served this Jesus, and as soon as the temperature got turned up and it was going to cost him his life, he bailed. No, 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 no. Paul changed the world he, he was walking this way, path of violence, path of destruction, and something turned him. Something took the reins and yanked his head the other way. And for the rest of his life, from that moment forward, he devoted himself strategically, intelligently, patiently, thoughtfully, until he was killed. So unless you want to prove from me from history, oh, and by the way, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, planted 30-something churches, changed the world. So unless you want to tell me Paul never existed, then you got some explaining to do about what happened to this man on that road and why he went from violent to peacemaker. From the one who said, be patient, come alongside, teach and instruct and love. From the one who wrote 1 Corinthians 13. You explained that to me. So, what happens next? So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Boy, let me just uh, what a soldier. <laughs> he goes to Saul and he says, hey, brother Saul, brother Saul, who might kill me? I believe what Jesus told me. And I believe that you met him on the road. And that he became real to you as you have become, as he has become real to me. And so I'm here to be his instrument and to bring healing to you and to restore your sight and to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with water so that you can spend the rest of your life dedicated to the mission for which you were made. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, "He is the Son of God." And all who heard him were amazed, and said, "Is not this man who made the is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests?" And here it comes, the transformation of Saul to Paul. Here it comes, the moment that God became real to him in this time in his life. But Paul, Saul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. Where did he do that? In the synagogues where he was going to deliver the letters and walk out with the blank arrest warrants and go and arrest people, tie them up, drag them to Jerusalem, and have them killed and sign the paper. There's one thing that serving Jesus is not. It is not futile. When you're a servant of Christ... When you're not just serving or doing community service, but you are a servant of Christ in response to who he is and what he's done in your life, I got news for you. What you do will be effective. Another litmus test for you when you're thinking about how you're serving and what you're doing. Is it effective? Are you effective? And I don't mean to say there aren't long spells of time sometimes where we have to, you know, Beat against the grain, you know, there have been certainly stories of missionaries that have spent 10, 15 years before they saw one convert in certain places in the world. But for the most part, in general, one of the ways you can look into your life and ask, am I serving or am I just doing service, is am I effective in what I'm doing? Am I affirmed by my community? Are lives changed by me? Do people end up getting Jesus eventually because they know me? Do they end up at least understanding who he is because they understand me? That is the fruit of of the servant of Christ. And that's what happened to Paul. So I want to leave you with this. This is a conversion story. Let me tell you when I think it happened, like physiologically, spiritually. Two words in that story. Same word said twice. Saul Saul. Saul, Saul was an address of affection, of intimacy. It was like a mother saying to her little boy who had skinned his knee or done something wrong. My son, my son. Saul had never heard God speak to him that way. Saul did not know God like that. Saul's concept of God was about rules and ritual and obedience to a concept and power struggle and ways of the world to accomplish these spiritual ends. And then he faced Jesus, and Jesus said, Saul, Saul. Do you know what else we see that dual address used? We see it in, with Abraham, um, the father of the, of, the, of the Jewish people, the father of Israel. We see it with Abraham when when uh, God appeared to him and uh, called his name, and he said, uh, here I am, Lord, just like Ananias did. He said, Here I am, Lord. And he said, Abraham, uh, I want you to take your son, and I want you to go to this mountain where I show you and bring stuff for an offering, and I want you to b- sacrifice him on the altar. And Abraham, I mean, do you think Abraham went, Oh, okay, do, 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 you know. Of course not. He was mortified. This was his son. It was his son of promise. It was the one he wasn't supposed to get. They called him laughter because they laughed when they heard that, he had been, that he, they were going to have a child. This was the one that was supposed to be the promise to bless the whole nations. And God just said, kill him, slice him apart, and burn him on an altar. And all it says is that Abraham went. That's all it says. He went. He took him. He took some men, and they traveled to this place. He told the men to wait behind, because I think he was figuring they're not going to understand this. But I think everybody was kind of noticing there was something missing. Okay, they've got the knife, they got the wood, they got this and that. And finally, his son asks the question. Isaac says, well, I see everything else. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, I'm sure, holding the tears back, I have to believe, says, God will provide a sacrifice. And there they go, up the mountain. So he makes the altar, He puts him on it. He ties him down. Maybe he had to do that first. He puts him on the altar. He stokes, you know, he gets it ready for the fire. I mean, I see the tears streaming down his face. He's holding the knife. He's moving to plunge it into his chest. And guess what he hears? Abraham, Abraham. And God says, I was a concept to you and today I am real to you because I saw that you would give me your own son. And you do not need to sacrifice your son because I have provided a sacrifice. And there was a ram in the thicket for him. But what Abraham did not know and what Saul did not know on that road to Damascus until Jesus said, Saul, Saul, Abraham did not know that God would face this same moment in his life and there would be no ram in the thicket. That is who God is. And that is what he has done for you. And if you serve in this church or anywhere else for any other reason, then in response to that, because he has said to you, Matt, Matt, Mark, Mark, Don, Don, Sally, Sally. If you haven't had that moment in your life, if you haven't had that season, that journey of conversion, if you haven't seen God displace your life so that serving for you is a joy of your salvation, then now is the time to meet him on that road. whether it's in a flash or whether it's over time, meet Jesus, the real Jesus, the one who would displace you, the one who would wreck all that that was in you and and give you everything that you ever needed. A relationship with him. Next week, now that we've talked about why we serve, We're going to talk about how we serve. And guess who we're going to look at? We're going to look at the life of Jesus and what a life of compassion looks like. Let's pray.